pray together. Father, thank you for demonstrating your own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had nothing to offer, nothing to do that we could pay our own debt. We were destined for hell for this debt that we couldn't pay. And yet as we sang and just heard, Jesus paid it all. He paid it in full. He paid it forever. His wounds have paid our ransom and there's no balance left. And you showed that you accepted that payment on Easter. And so we don't look at the cross tonight without the benefit of that perspective of knowing Christ rose victorious to show he had conquered sin and death. And so we come tonight before you just to remember what you have done for us. Thank you that we can take uh, time to just set aside and reflect on what you have done through Christ on the cross. Lord, I pray you'd expand our mind's understanding of that. I pray you would deepen our thankfulness for that. I pray that if anyone's here or listening online that doesn't know Jesus, that even tonight they would come to put their trust in him. Ask these things in his mighty name. Amen. A few years ago, a school district in Florida was sued because they held their high school graduation ceremonies in a church. And one of the big issues was the cross in the front of the sanctuary. So it's like us, we have a cross very prominent in the front of the sanctuary. And the plaintiffs demanded that the cross be covered up. And the church said, we won't do that. And Al Mohler commented on this whole situation. Paul said the preaching of the cross is an offense, but now it appears that the mere shape of the cross has a similar effect on some people. Any way you look at it, the cross remains a scandal. So why is it that the cross is and always has been a scandal? Why have there always been such negative reactions to the way Jesus was put to death. And our text for this evening explains some of the reasons why people respond to the cross the way they do. So if you have your Bible, open back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which Kyle read for us earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the word of the cross is the message of a crucified Savior. As Paul will say later in chapter 15, it is the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It is the proclamation that the only hope of guilty sinners being accepted and forgiven by a holy God is by trusting in Jesus 
the one who was executed on a cross on that first Good Friday. Paul tells us that this message about the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. Unbelievers do not and cannot understand how a man who died like that could be worth believing. It seems ridiculous to say he is the only one who could rescue us. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul will say it again. A natural man does not accept or receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. But not everyone sees the cross as foolish nonsense. Those who are being saved see the cross as the power of God. So why are there such opposite ways of seeing the exact same thing? Paul explains two of the reasons why people reject the word of the cross in verses 22 and 23. He says, indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So Paul tells us when Jews look at the cross, they see a stumbling block. The Greek word Paul uses is the word that gives us the word scandal, which means something that shocks or offends. Why are Jews offended? What trips them up about this? And Paul tells us it's because they demand signs. They want to see supernatural demonstrations of power. Remember how they were constantly badgering Jesus to perform miraculous signs to prove that he was God's promised Messiah. So how in the world could Jesus be the Christ when he was utterly helpless hanging on a cross? Especially since Deuteronomy 21 says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They couldn't believe there could be such a thing as a crucified Messiah. It was a huge stumbling block that they couldn't get over. And so they rejected the message of the cross. And when Gentiles, ethically non-Jewish people, look at the cross, all they see is foolishness. The word Paul uses gives us the word moron. It was utter nonsense. How can you expect us to believe that a man who suffered such a terrible and shameful death is the answer to our deepest needs? You've got to be kidding. Anthony Thistleton wrote uh, a commentary on 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says about the cross. Death on a cross was regarded in Roman culture as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists and could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminals. It was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society except through euphemisms. The notion of a crucified Christ was an affront and an outrage. We too often forget its ugliness and its shame. And 2,000 years later, there are still plenty of negative reactions to the cross. This is just one quote of many I could share. It comes from Ted Turner. You've probably heard of him, uh, owner of CNN and the Atlanta Braves. And um, 
kind of a colorful character, but this is, and supposedly <laughs> born again multiple times, including by Billy Graham himself, and uh, was going to be a missionary. This is what he said. Christ had to come down here and suffer and die on the cross that with his blood our sins could be washed away. Weird, man. I'm telling you, nobody has to die on the cross and have a blood sacrifice the way these ancient religions did down here in the pyramids of Mexico. So that's how he sees it. And it's not hard to find quotes like that from the world. And sadly, it's not that hard to find quotes like that from those who identify themselves as Christians that say the cross is embarrassing or outdated or unacceptable. But at the deepest level, the word of the cross offends us because it contradicts our cherished belief that we can do something that will make things right with God. This is what John Stott wrote. What is there about the cross of Christ which angers the world? The cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves. Unpalatable means disagreeable and distasteful. Namely, that we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. Christ bore our sin and curse precisely because we could gain release from these in no other way. If we could have been forgiven by our own good works, we may be sure that there would be no cross. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have an inflated view of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. And of course, men do not like it. And uh, as I was looking at that quote, it reminded me of a conversation I had a few years ago with a couple that came in for premarital counseling. And I um, didn't really know them well, so I wanted to find out about their relationship with God. So I asked, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And the young man answered, I did my best. So no reference to Christ, even though Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. No reference to sin, no reference to the cross, just I did my best. That's why God should let me into his heaven. And so I tried to explain that being accepted by God has nothing to do with what we can do, it has everything to do with what Christ has already done on the cross. That our best is not good enough. Only Christ can bring us to God. And they were very offended. They were upset. It sure seemed like the word of the cross had insulted their pride and their self-sufficiency. But not everyone rejects the word of the cross. Many accept it as God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin and sin. Not all see it as weakness. Some see it as the power of God. Not everyone sees it as foolishness. Some see it as the wisdom of God. 
even though many are offended by the cross, many embrace it as precious and can say with Paul in Galatians 6, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sang earlier, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom of my own, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. His death on a cross, that shameful death on the cross. I'll boast in that, not be ashamed of it or turn away from it. So if we are here this evening and we cherish the old rugged cross, which is so despised by this world and even some under the umbrella of the church, why do we see it that way? And we're told why we responded the way we did in verse 24. But let me reread 23. This is back in 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul tells us, everywhere I go, I preach the same message about a crucified Savior. And I can always count on certain responses to that word of the cross. A lot of Jews are going to stumble over that. And a lot of Gentiles are going to call it utter nonsense. But there is a subset out of all the people that will hear that message who will believe in Christ. They will see the word of the cross as the wisdom and power of God. So who are these people who respond like that? Paul calls them the called or those who are called. So D.A. Carson writes this. Those who stand apart from the perishing world are those whom God has called. The fundamental reason they are different is that God has called them which in Paul's use means that God has reached out and saved them. God's call, as Paul refers to it, is effective. Those whom God calls are inevitably saved. And he points us to Romans 8.30, which says, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that kind of calling brings with it the faith that justifies, which terminates in being glorified forever. So that's the kind of call, effectual or effective call. True, the same people can be referred to as those who believe. From the human perspective, faith appropriates the matchless benefits of Christ's cross. But the question of ultimate cause must be asked. If it was God's wisdom that ensured that the world through its wisdom would not come to know him, how did these people come to believe? In other words, left to ourselves, we can't even know God. 121. So how, do you, how did we come to know Jesus and believe in him? If everyone finds the cross foolish and repulsive, how did these people come to delight in it? 
Paul's answer is they were called by God himself. So think of Lydia. Go to Acts 16. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, Paul's in Philippi now, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And we know Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians, everywhere he goes, he always preaches Christ and him crucified. So, that's part of what he's speaking to these women at the riverside. Then verse 14 says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why did Lydia respond in faith to Paul's message about the cross? It wasn't because she was smarter than the other women who were listening that day. We're specifically told it was because the Lord opened her heart. If you're here tonight and you know Jesus, you'd say, that's my testimony too. The Lord, Lord had to do that. The Lord opened my heart. Or think of Peter in... Matthew 16, if you want to turn to that. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now why did Peter come up with that answer? Was he just sharper than all the people that were guessing he's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets? Is he just better than them? Well, look at verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, truly happy in the fullest sense of the word. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. That's how Peter knew who Jesus was. God revealed it to him. And if you're here tonight and you know who Jesus really is, God did that for us in us. In the song, I'm Forever Grateful, we sing the truth. You did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. Paul has a lot more to say about our calling in the verses that Kyle read, but it's all building to a conclusion. He's building a case in order to get us all at the same place about what is God's intended goal in his gracious dealings with us. And he tells us in verse 29 through 31. God's goal in doing it the way he did it, calling who he calls, chooses whom he choosing, 
was so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it's just that theme we keep trumpeting all the time. Everything is by his grace. Everything is for his glory. So as we close, how do you see the cross tonight? If God is showing you that it is the only way you can have a relationship with God, acknowledge, I'm a sinner before God. I have sinned against him by thought, word, and deed. I am disqualified from being accepted by him. And that's true of all of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we would turn from being at peace with sin and turn from trying to gain God's approval by anything we could do, including trying our best or going to church or anything else that we try to offer and say, look at this, God. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, by grace, God's unearned, undeserved favor and kindness, you have been saved through Faith in that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. Why not? So no one boasts, just like verse 29. God is opposed to human boasting. He designed salvation in such a way that it excludes it, not minimizes it, takes it completely off the table. There's nothing we can boast about at all. Um, just today, um, some of you might go to Babylon Bee, um, mixed bag there, but it had uh, all the reasons um, why you deserve to be saved by God. And it was like this blank square with bullet points, but nothing. And that's absolutely right. Absolutely nothing. Not just we, God did his part, he supplied Jesus, and we did our part. Fill in the blank what that part is. 100% done by God, 0% boasting by us, 100% of the glory goes to God alone. And so we trust in Christ alone, believing his death on the cross that we're talking about tonight and remembering tonight was God's appointed way to rescue sinners. Jesus was a substitute who died in our place, paid the debt we owed. And believe that as we will celebrate on Sunday, God raised him from the dead on the third day to show Christ had triumphed over sin and death. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, before we sing our next song, I want to read a definition. We're going to sing, when I survey the wondrous cross. And if you look up survey, it means to examine as to condition or value, to appraise, that is, to estimate the worth or significance of something. The 1828 Webster's adds, it denotes more particular and deliberate attention than mere looking or seeing. It's a way of answering the question, is now not the dictionary, what do you see when you look at the cross? And we're going to sing a song that describes what, because of God's gracious calling, what we see now when we survey the cross. So let's stand and sing that together. It will be on the screen.